you have your Bibles this morning, let's open them up together to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This morning we're going to begin reading in verse 21 and we're going to go through verse 31. Again, over the last few weeks I've been thinking about these last two weeks and I've thought about what exactly it would be that I would desire to share with you in the last two sermons that we have together. Last week I spoke to you as a pastor coming from the pastoral epistle of Philippians and today I want to talk to you about a subject that all of us I know are very familiar with but it's always good to be reminded of. We've, we sang about it over and over and over again this morning. It is the, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 and going through verse 31, John Piper calls the most important paragraph in all of the word. In, in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31, we get the message of the gospel, what we need, what Jesus did, and how we get that, met, that righteousness that he has given to us. It is the gospel. It is what unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it is what motivates us to the work that we have been given by Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. When you get it, let's stand up together and read these 10 verses of Scripture together that are so familiar to you, I know. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is, it God, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. God, this is the gospel. It is the gospel that is given to us, Lord, in the testimony of all of your scripture. From the beginning to the end, Lord, this is the gospel. That there is a need that all of us have that we are unable to fulfill, but yet, but yet you sent Jesus, God, to be our sacrifice, to atone for our sins to take the punishment that we deserve. And by faith, God, we, we become one of your children, either Jew or Gentile. By faith, God, we become 
one of yours. We belong to this church because of faith that we have in Christ Jesus. We belong to your kingdom because of faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And God, we are motivated to serve you because of faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, remind us today not only of the great need that we have, Lord, of the work that you have done on our behalf, but of our great need for faith to believe upon the work of Jesus for our salvation. God, let this, the, the gospel, be the center of all that we do as a body, of everywhere that we go as a church. Lord, let the gospel be, Lord, our salvation and also our motivation. Lord, we, we ask, God, that you be with us as we look at this passage together this morning. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Simple enough, it is, it is the gospel. The gospel is the starting point for our relationship together. But it is also the thing that motivates us to do that which God has asked of us as individuals, but also as a church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does something here for us in this book of Romans, this letter to the church of Rome. He helps us to understand the beginning point the beginning point that each and every person has. We heard it as Romans 3.23, probably memorized it as a kid, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that no one finds himself upon their nature or upon their birth as worthy. No, we all are failures, we might say. This is the message that Paul has given to us, that our personal condition is a condition of failure. The condition that is our default is a condition of failure. He says that it's a failure, it's a failure in the law. But I want to be careful. I'm not saying that there is a failure in the law as it was given by God himself. The failure in the law is, is that we have an inability to see and to meet the law that has been given to us. Now listen to what he says again in verse 21. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he says. And then in verse 23, he reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The stage for this paragraph, the stage for this verse that I just read to you, it is set in the beginning part of Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says in Romans 3, verse 10, None is righteous. No, not one. Listen to what he says. He says, No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Do you see the distinction that Paul is helping us to understand? Whether it be Jew or it be Gentile, none of us find our default position as a position worthy of salvation or even a position able to earn our salvation through the obedience of the law. This is an important distinction for us. As we begin to talk about the gospel, it's important for us to understand this part of the gospel. It is. The fault is in us. The fault is in us. It is in our ability to fulfill the law perfectly. Our inability to meet the standards of the law. 
we cannot say, logically speaking, that the fault is inside the law itself because I want to remind you about how the law came about. Do you remember? God gave the law to Moses, right? God gave the law to Moses. He inscribed with his hands upon the initial law of the Ten Commandments. God gave the law to Moses. And to, so to say that there is fault in the law alone is to say that there is fault in our God alone. None of us would dare. None of us would dare say that there is any fault inside of our God creator sustainer. None of us would look to God and say, God, you have a fault in yourself. No, there is no fault in God and there is no fault in the law that he has given. The fault lies in our inability to keep the law that we have. We cannot keep this law. Just try it this week. Better yet, try it this afternoon. Take the Ten Commandments that exist in Exodus chapter 20, read them, and do your best to obey those Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, even in the next 12 hours. We will stumble, we will fall, because we are not able to keep perfectly the law. No one understands. That's what verse 11 says of Romans chapter 3. No one understands. No one seeks God. You see, it's in us. It's in us that, that this fault lies. And look, I understand that the beginning point of the gospel, the beginning point of the gospel doesn't sound like good news, does it? The beginning point of the gospel doesn't sound like good news. And it's not, it's not a common contemporary junk psychology of our world, right? Our world wants you to believe that man is innately good. That, it, that on their, their natural condition is, is to do good things and to be good people. All you have to do is look around you to know that that is false, that it is not our nature to do good, but it is our nature to do evil. But our world believes that deep down we have more good in us than we have bad. So certainly there is a way that we can make ourselves into salvation. But this is not the message of Romans chapter 3. This is not the message of the New Testament. This is not the message of the gospel. Some in theological circles would call this part of the gospel total depravity. They would say that there is this understanding that we are unable in and of ourselves to do anything to save our own souls. This is good news. That there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. There is nothing that you are able to do to save your own soul. You cannot work yourself into salvation. You are not good enough by nature to save yourself. But we have, Paul says, an available righteousness, not in the law, but in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, he says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the righteousness that we have a, available to us, it doesn't come through our own works or through our own goodness. It comes through Jesus Christ. There is a possible redemption from our default evil condition. And that redemption comes only 
through the work of Christ on the cross, given to us, we are told, by faith. Again, we need to, get, we need to go back to this truth. Our salvation, it cannot be earned. You should know this. Our salvation, it cannot be earned. But to say that it cannot be earned is not the same thing as saying that there are no requirements for redemption. You see, it cannot be earned, but there are expectations to become a recipient. And that expectation, according to Paul, is faith. It's faith. To believe that there are no expectations to have this salvation, well, that's universalism. That's the belief that all people at all times will always be saved. That is not the testimony of Paul. That is not the testimony of the gospel. It's not the testimony of scriptures. But instead, it is only those who have faith that will be saved. That's what Paul says. He says, for all who believe, right? Whom God put forth as a propitiation, verse 25 says, by his blood to be received by faith, Paul says. You see, this salvation, it is not for all people at all times. It's for those who have faith. It's for those who trust in the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. It is for those who put their life inside the life of Jesus himself. It's for those who claim to be disciples as Jesus and so walk in his ways because they believe deeply that Jesus Christ was the payment for their sins. Romans 3 says that it's by faith. Belief he uses one time. That's in verse 22. But all other times he says that it is by faith. Well... What does it mean to have faith? This is a question I think is legitimate for us. What does it mean to have faith? How are we saved? What does it mean to believe? Well, Romans chapter 4 helps us understand that. Romans chapter 4 helps us understand what faith is, the faith that leads to our salvation. Abraham is offered to us as an example here by Paul. Listen to what he says about Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And again, he says, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And so it is for us. We believe in God. Specifically, we believe that God sent Jesus as our grace gift and he is our redemption. You see, for us, this seems too simple though, doesn't it? It seems too elementary for us that all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is trust. All we have to do is have faith. We believe this is too elementary because we want to earn this ourselves. We want to make ourselves in a distinct class from the rest of the world, and yet it is this easy, according to Paul. It is just simply believing in the work of Jesus Christ. It's believing that he is our sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is our atonement. He is our mercy seat. Jesus paid something for us that we could not pay. But we want so badly to be able to claim our own righteousness. And yet, the expectation that the scriptures give us is not our works. It's just our faith. The expectation is just our faith. It's the belief and, and, and that alone that saves us from the depravity of our heart and makes us righteous. This is good news. That we are in need and yet Jesus has paid the price. This is the good news of the gospel. 
Jesus paid the price through his sacrifice. The sacrifice is the means of paying our price. Look at verse 25 and 26. Whom God, it says, put forward, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The sacrifice was the means of our righteousness. We We just finished the Christmas season. And as we talk about Christmas every year, it doesn't matter. As we talk about Christmas, we always do so with Easter in our minds. This is the way it ought to be because Jesus came as a babe in a manger. But the whole intention of Jesus' birth, of him being born on this earth, was so that he might die on the cross. It was the intention of God. Look at what it says in verse 25. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. It was the intention of his coming that Jesus be the means by which we find our righteousness. It was the intention that Jesus be the death for our sinfulness. This is why, again, it says in verse 25 that Jesus is our propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. This is not a word we ever use. None of us ever use this word. As a matter of fact, I would say as we come across this word, we probably do like I do a lot of New Testament words, especially Old Testament names. I just make a word up, right? Just kind of make it up, make it sound like I know what I'm talking about and everybody believes me. Nobody knows what propitiation means. We have to explain it. What what does Paul mean that Jesus is our propitiation? Very simply, he means that, that Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our sacrifice that bears God's wrath. And as He is our sacrifice that bears the wrath of God, in so doing, He changes God's wrath into God's favor. You see, what Jesus did upon the cross was He took the wrath of all of our faults, the wrath of all of our sin. He took the wrath of all of our failures, and instead of God looking to us with wrath, which is what is deserving, He looks to us now with favor. This is what propitiation means, that Jesus is our atonement, that Jesus is our salvation. That Jesus is the one who substituted himself for our own wrath. Propitiation. It's not a word that we use, but it's something that we need to talk about because it's the word that's in our Bibles, right? Propitiation. It's a word that has been translated by other Bibles. Your Bible may not even say propitiation. It may use the word mercy seat. Again, the picture is we needed salvation. And Jesus was placed upon the altar for our sins. That's what mercy seat means. It means that Jesus' blood was spread upon that altar so to appease the wrath of God. Some translations say that he is our atoning sacrifice. Again, it's saying the very same thing. Jesus was the one as a, a, through his sacrifice that atoned for all of the sins of man. 
See, Jesus' sacrifice is the means by which we are able to have salvation. And our faith allows us to enjoy that salvation. Jesus' death, His sacrifice, it is the necessary work that atones for our salvation, our sinfulness. His sacrifice, it's, we are to believe in, that we are to have faith in. We are to find salvation in that sacrifice. This is why Paul says that in Jesus' sacrifice, we find the divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. God looks to our sin and he sees our faults no more, but he sees our favor. In the blood of Jesus, there's a passing over our sins. In the death of Jesus, there's a rendering of us righteous rather than guilty. Jesus' sacrifice is the means by which we are saved. We are saved from our depravity. Through faith, we have peace in God. Finally, I want you to see here that we are reminded of the humility of grace. This is important. Verses 27 through 31, we might overlook, but it reminds us again of our nature. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You, you have not earned your salvation. You have not attended enough church to get salvation. You have not earned your salvation. It is, Paul says, I love this, Paul says it is a grace gift to you. And it is a grace gift to you so that you have no place to boast in something that someone else has done for you. You see, we can't walk around saying that we are any better than anyone else because we have somehow done more work or we have somehow attended more church. We have accomplished more that God has asked us to. No, it is not in those things that you are saved. It is in Jesus Christ alone and His, Paul says, grace gift that you are saved. And so Paul pushes back on us a little bit. He says then what becomes of our boasting? And see, Paul does this because he knows our nature. Our nature is to boast about things. Our nature is to claim a work on our own. Our nature is to claim that we somehow have done something to earn God's favor. So Paul pushes back on us and he says, well, what do we do with our boasting? What do we do with our claiming that it's something that we have done? And Paul says simply, it is excluded so as to remind us that it is a faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone alone that saves man it is simple too elementary we might say just faith just belief yes and the rest of the work is a grace gift of our God so I want you to think about this as individual followers of Christ but also as a church what does it mean that it's a grace gift what do, we, what do we mean by saying that it's a gift that's given to us by grace and not something that we've earned on our own? But I, I think you all will understand that it, it being a grace gift, it helps us have a proper perspective 
on the gospel itself. You see, since it's a gift, since it's a gift, it puts our eyes not on ourselves, but on the giver. Since it's a gift, we worship not our own strength, but we worship the one that's given it to us. Since it's a gift, since it's a grace gift, we worship the giver because he alone is worthy of our praise. Since it's a gift, we cherish this gospel. Since it's something that someone has given to us that is special to us, we cherish that gift that he has given. You know how it is. We all have things in our lives that really are worth nothing, but someone special has given it to us. We all have things that really have no earthly value, but they have sentimental, we might say, or they have special value in our hearts because of who owned it before us because of who had it before us. This is the way it is with this grace gift of God. We cherish this thing that God has given to us because of whom it has come from. We cherish this gospel because, in fact, God did love us enough to send Jesus on our behalf. When we were in desperate need, he met our need. We cherish the gospel because it is a grace gift. We worship the giver because it is a grace gift. And since it is a grace gift, since it is a grace gift, we live for its purposes. You see, this is where it kind of gets sticky for us. Because we have a lot of people in our world who claim to have experienced this grace gift and yet they live as if they have not. Isn't this where it kind of gets complicated for us? We have people who, who claim to have experienced this grace gift, have faith, a deep-seated belief in the work of Jesus Christ, that he was the means by which we were taken away from our depravity by his mercy and we were saved. We have people who claim such a gift, but they do not live for its purposes. And, and I would just simply say to you, the testimony of the New Testament all of the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of Paul and even the testimony of James, the testimony of John in both his gospel and his letters is simple. If you have experienced the light, you walk in the light. James would say it this way, where there are no works, there is no faith. It's because those who have experienced this grace gift, they live for its purpose. They live for its intention. They live in obedience to our Lord. It is not enough. Hear me plainly. It is not enough just to say that you are a Christian. That is not evidence that is sufficient. Just ask Paul, John, or James. That's not enough. It's those people who have truly experienced the gospel. They are people that are living for that gospel purpose. They are walking according to the instructions that have been given believers inside of his word. We might say it like this. A proper perspective on the gospel will drive us to obedience in our worship, our discipleship, the mission that saved us and the mission that saves others. This is what the gospel does to a man's heart. 
The gospel does this for a man. He saves him absolutely. He is the mercy seat on his behalf, the sacrificing, atoning work on his behalf. He is the propitiation for us indeed. By our faith, we are saved, not on our own works, but instead as a grace gift. But beyond that, we are pressed out. As we truly understand the gospel, it drives us to obedience, worship, discipleship, and the mission to which we have been given. It is the same mission that saved us. This is what happens when the gospel gets a hold of a person. This is what happens when the gospel gets us, when we realize the humility of grace presses us to do his work truly this is my prayer for us as individuals but even us as our church as we move forward that the gospel would be the center of our church and as the gospel is the center as the work and the truth of the gospel as it's recorded here in Romans as, as it is recorded in all of scripture as the gospel is the center of our church as we gain a proper perspective on the truthfulness of the gospel it will continue to drive us to obedience and worship, discipleship the mission that saved us and the mission that saves others this is, this is what the gospel will do one of my favorite songs of all times was a little short chorus actually that, uh, that we've sang before Jordan introduced it to us I think several several years ago but it's, 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 a, little, it's a little small little chorus that uh, that Charlie Hall placed on an old hymn. And, and as I've thought about this this week, preparing for this message on the gospel, it has been the thing that I've continued to whistle and hum. You know, that's the way it works with me. I whistle and hum things as I prepare, uh, as I prepare sermons, and sometimes as I'm whistling a song, uh, unconsciously almost, it, it's a song that leads directly into what we're talking about. And Charlie Hall wrote these words in front of the song uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus he, he said O Christ be the center of our lives O Christ be the place where we fix our eyes Christ be the center of our lives and then he sings you know this one turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face. All of the things will grow strangely dim in the light, get this, of his glory and grace. You see, truly, when we are able to look at the grace of our God, the grace gift that has been imparted to us, those in great need by his righteousness, his propitiation, His work. As we turn our eyes fully upon those things, as we truly make Jesus the center of our lives, we will have God's glory and God's grace as the light for our lives and our congregation. This is my prayer for you in the days to come. This is my prayer for you. Oh Christ, be the center of Oh, Christ, be the place where their eyes are fixed. Be the center of their life. Oh, Christ, turn their eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Lord, 
that all the things of earth grow strangely dim as they look in the light of your glory and your grace. This is my prayer for us. The gospel would be the center of our life. Let's pray together. Lord, the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel is that that by default, we are in fault. And yet by default, our fault can be corrected through the righteousness of Jesus. He is, Lord, our atoning sacrifice. He, is, he has been to the mercy seat on our behalf. He has got our propitiation. He's our substitute. He's our payment. He has taken the wrath that belonged upon us. He has taken the wrath, Lord, that we deserved. And so, God, we stand. We stand now in this moment worshiping you for the grace gift that you've given to us. We stand and we worship you because you're a good giver. You're a God worthy of praise and worship. God, we stand and we worship you because, God, you desire for us not only to be a recipient, but to be a part of the gospel. Lord, truly let the gospel be the center of our lives. Lord, let the gospel be the center of our church. Turn our eyes upon Jesus, Lord. Let us look full into your face. Lord, the things of this earth, God, they will grow strangely the light of your glory and your grace. Help us turn our eyes upon Jesus. Pray and ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior.